The Digital Banking Podcast is powered by Typhoon. Typhoon is a dramatically better digital banking provider. Our appeal is unique. We collaborate closely with our customers and the banking ecosystem in an open approach coupled with a powerful user experience that helps get things done. On our podcast, you will hear how digital banking plays a leading role for community-minded financial institutions from the unique perspectives of our industry expert guests. You know, your podcast hasn't officially made it until there's ads in it. But this is one you're not going to want to skip past. And if you do, feel free to hit that fast forward 15 seconds button twice. Ever wonder what gives me my energy and enthusiasm during these podcasts? You know, outside of my relentless desire to learn about, connect, share, and build up community FIs and their mission to support the communities they serve. It's coffee. (laughs) And lots of it. Now, you want to know what's better than your regular old coffee? How about donating $5 to the Children's Miracle Network Hospitals through Credit Unions for Kids every time you purchase high-quality, ethically-sourced coffee that also provides living wages to coffee farmers? So if you want to listen to this episode with epic levels of caffeine-induced focus and help kids in need, head to javaforkids.org to learn more and buy a bag or 10. Thanks. Welcome to another episode of the Digital Banking Podcast. My guest today is Don Schaefer, the co-founder and chief evangelist of Quillo. And Don is one of those folks who loves to just sit back, relax, and do nothing. Maybe that's why he's joining me today from his cabin in Montana. No, sorry, that's a huge lie. I think Don is one of those people that couldn't sit still if his life depended on it. Whether it be building tricycles with his fraternity in college to ride 90 miles for charity helping out with his grandkids, or starting a new company deep into his 60s, which, by the way, he considers young. And I have to say, if you met him in person, you would agree too. Don is one of those people that's always on the move. And his passion for the community FI space really channels all that energy to focus on delivering amazing solutions that help the industry that he loves so much. So Don, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Thanks for joining me. Thank you, Josh. Excited to be here. Well, you know, it's funny how this started is I was at a conference, what, a couple of months ago, and I'm sitting in the way back room of the big auditorium and here this guy I've never met gets up on stage. And I think about 26 seconds into you being on stage, I was making myself a note on my phone. I was like, I got to get this guy on the podcast. This is going to be a blast. So I've been looking forward to it ever since. Well, thank you. I'm very excited. Ever since you asked me to do this, I've been looking forward to it myself. So I'm very excited about doing this with you. Well, so I have to start with an off-topic, off-podcast topic question, but it just intrigued me so much when you mentioned it when we were talking earlier. So tell me about this whole, you guys built tricycles and rode 90 miles thing? Yeah. Yeah. Back in Texas A&M, this goes back to like 1975. I'll be... I'll be 69 this October. And yeah, that's young. I got lots more to do. But by the way, I've noticed in the Bible, nobody retired. So I don't think retirement is really, I think that's something. I just think the unions came up with that at some, you know, back in the 20s or 30s, something about people retiring. Anyway, so back in college, I had this passion for the Shriners Children's Hospital. I'd, I'd had a chance to go into a Shriners Children's Hospital in Dallas. It's all the amazing thing they did for these kids. And, you know, and, and the children, the families, they didn't pay anything, but these were children that needed new, you know, arms and legs, they just had bad, bad things. And this Shriners, I just had a thing for that. 
So I came back to the fraternity and said, hey, I got an idea. Why don't we do something really awesome, you know, raise some money to the Shriners. We're a bunch of, you know, drunken college kids, basically. And I knew that it wasn't going to work unless I could entice a sorority to go with us. So we did. And part of the thing to raise the money was we're going to build tricycles. Well, actually, we were going to get tricycles, little tricycles, and ride them from College Station, from Kyle Field, over to Memorial Stadium in Austin for the Texas game. That was the idea. And we set about doing that, get people to pledge, you know, you will get, you know, get 50 cents a mile, dollar a mile, whatever, do that stuff. And to really, though, to get the fraternity to buy into this, I talked to a gentleman in Dallas who was a big supporter of the Shriners. And what he did for us, and this was what sealed the deal, he sent two big buses, like two big Greyhound buses from Dallas to College Station. And we loaded up the fraternity and the sorority. So we had two bus loads of 19, 20, 20 year old kids taking the three hour bus ride up to Dallas to go visit the Shriners Hospital. And it was done at that point because these girls and my fraternity brothers were going into these rooms, seeing these kids. I mean, it was like, it was real easy once we got back to have a vote. It's like, oh yeah. Now, half the guys probably voted it. Well, I shouldn't say that. All the girls voted for it because they wanted to help. You know, probably 90% of the guys voted for it because they're going to be working with the girls. And then there was 10% of the guys that did it for the right reason. But, but it turned out to be awesome. What was funny, though, we didn't get five miles out of College Station. And all these tricycles were falling apart. Because <laughs> we, you know, we went to the you know, local hardware store or whatever to buy them. And they, didn't, they weren't built for 160, 180 people riding these tracks. So they were all falling apart. And so uh, we had to stop. And we went and got some people at welding shops and built us some. Within about four or five hours, we were able to get back out there with some oh my god tricycles to go the ninety miles. Now, I'm so thrilled to be able to tell you this because I don't think I'd pull it off today. Because back then, you could get stuff done with other universities, and they weren't you know anything that would the University of Texas embraced the whole idea. And so we'd contact them ahead of time and said, "What we'd like to do is come into the stadium, you know, before kickoff." And I don't think you'd pull it off today, but back in the 70s, that's the kind of stuff you could do. And they said, absolutely. So when we got over to Austin, awesome. we got to the Memorial Stadium. We waited in, I don't know, maybe two hours before the game, but people were coming to the stands and they got on the, they got on the PA system and they got announced this. And here comes the Texas Aggies who've rode, rode these tricycles over here to, to raise money. So that was, that was probably one of my cool things I did back in school. Uh, that's so awesome. I love those kinds of stories about, you know, things some of the best things almost happen by accident and when they're just not forced and, you know, something just sparks and you run with it. And it's really cool to see when they actually come to fruition and turn into something like that. And man, it, 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 has anybody ever done it since? Did somebody pick up that torch and carry it and keep going with it? No, not that I'm aware of. It's interesting that you ask that because this is, you know, what's the odds? Well, you, nobody could see it, but behind me, you can see it. It says Sigma Phi Epsilon. Cal Mega Thanksgiving Tricathon, which because we played UT on Thanksgiving Day, every, you know, beat birth defects and TU. So that was TU means the University of Texas. Anyway, that, that was That's that is cool. awesome. I don't know, Don, I feel like I'm putting us on the spot here saying this, you know, on the podcast that's going to get released to tons of people to listen to. But I don't know. I feel like we need to organize some sort of community FI trike ride <laughs> for uh, credit unions for kids or something. Well, I'll put that in the back of my I'm, brain. I'm sure something might pop up. I, I'm down to ride a trike 90 miles. That sounds terrible. I'm all in. <laughs> so, I mean, I have to imagine I'm probably extrapolating a little bit here, but 
it's kind of that mentality that got you excited about the community at Space then. Oh, the, uh, I think I am the most passionate person. If I'm not the most, I don't find anybody that's more passionate about community maxi cravings than me. And I, and I like to tell everybody why. Can I take that time to do that? I would love that. If you look at the whole world, look at the global economy, look at every country. The United States economy has roared since World War II. I mean, if you just go back, it's you know, 75 years. No other country's GDP has come anywhere close. We've just crushed it. What people don't know, Josh, think about this. Now, I haven't looked in the last four or five years, but I know that if you go back five years ago, if you looked at the U.S. GDP, you had to add up, get this, you had to add up Japan, Germany, and China. Five years ago, China was the uh, fourth largest GDP. To equal the United States, you had to add up Japan, Germany, and China together, all of those together to equal what we did, what we did. Now, let me ask you, you know, what's interesting about that? The second and third largest GDP, now I, have, I may have them backwards. I don't know if Japan or Germany was second and third, but is one of those. What's interesting about Japan and Germany? What do they have in common with the United States? With the United States? I don't know. History. They have, what's that? The United States economy, here's a hint, has roared since World War II. Within the war. Yeah. And, and what does Japan and Germany have in common? They were part of that. Yeah. They were the countries that we had to go out and crush and defeat to yeah. tyranny. And so one of the things, why am I passionate about Bags of Creed is I'm passionate about our country. You know, we got some woke people out there think we're so bad. Wait a minute. Oh, really? We defeated Japan and Germany, and then they became the second and third largest GDPs in the world because the United States was there to help them rebuild those countries. So that's just a little side. Okay, now, how is it that we became so gigantic? Think about this. Do you know how many banks are in uh, Canada? I don't know the answer to that. I think it's, it's definitely smaller than we have here, right? It's five. You have more than five within 20 miles of your house. If you go to Mexico, they have 43 or 42, depending on what year you look at. And so people in the U.S. go, what? So how is it that our economy has this massive thing? People have no clue that there's no other financial system on the planet like ours. Now, when I started in the mid-80s, there were 35,000 banks and credit unions in this country, half and half, 18,000, 18,000. It's still that way today. Today, though, there's only about 9,000, there's less than 10,000, about 4,500, 4,500. So I want people to understand the reason our economy just grew and grew and grew, it didn't matter where you lived in the United States, you could go to a local institution that was willing to loan you money to start a business because they knew your family, they knew you, and they trusted you, and they would say, yeah, we'll loan you this money. That doesn't exist anywhere else. I mean, you, you get off an airplane, go to these other countries, say, where are the community banks? And crazy. Well, we don't have any. We got six banks in our country. Do you understand it? So that's why the, the education, we need to help everybody understand. We were able to do all this because we had all of these individual small credit unions and banks that would loan money to people. And that's all going away, which is why I'm so passionate about trying to do everything I can to help them compete with these big guys. Well, that makes it. It raises an interesting question. So, you know, I think one of the reasons why, and I'm playing a little bit of devil's advocate here because I'm on your fence, right? Or I'm on your team here. You know, it's why I bank at a credit union, right? And I've been with them 
for 15 plus years is because they do. They, they know me, right? I can go in. I can sit down with them. I've used this example in the past in the podcast, right? And they've given me loans at times where on paper I shouldn't have, but they understood context and they changed my life because of it. Yeah. Right. But when we start to look at how technology and especially some of these niche fintech players come into this space, how we can start to use things like machine learning and artificial intelligence to be able to learn some of these tidbits about Don and understand him, maybe quite frankly, dare I say, even better than a person does based on his spending habits, his transactions, what he's doing, where he's going, where he's been, what his incomes are, all of these different things. Do you think we get to a place where machines and large organizations can provide even more custom tailored community feeling relationship feeling services than a community FI? What does that mean for our space? Well, it's a great question. And there is a solution. And the solution is for the community banks and credit unions out there to partner with these fintechs. I mean, we all know this. The fintech world is just coming. It's amazing how many of just thousands, th- literally thousands of fintechs. They're all trying to find their little niche. And banks and credit unions need to say, technology is moving so fast. I mean, I have a, plenty of other CEOs of bank trades that are telling me this. They're saying, look, technology is moving way, way too fast for us to wait on our core processor or somebody to put it all together for us. We just can't. It just The cores would love to launch all this stuff. They would love to, but unfortunately... They're tied to their legacy systems. And so when they want to launch a new product or a service, they could, you know, go grab fintech out there, but they still have to put it in the integrated end. And that's the problem. They might have 20, 30-year-old. They have multiple systems. And it just takes them way, way, way too long. And so that's why I think there's now this, you talk to the CEOs out there, a lot more of them now are embracing the idea of, I can't, I don't want to wait. It doesn't need to be integrated. I need to take what's available now (laughs) and get it out and start using it for my customers. So I see the thing about, you know, even though we're losing and we're losing and we keep losing banks and crazies, the numbers keep going down, there's still going to be a bunch of them that survive. And the one thing, why that's critical is what you just pointed out. If I have a problem and something's going wrong with me at, at my Chase account, I can't call Jamie Diamond. I mean, I'm not going to be able to get in and see anybody that can do anything. I mean, I, this is what I keep hearing from people in the real world. It's like, you know, I have these issues, I have these problems, and I go into the branch and nobody can help me. If you're doing business with a community institution, they're going to help you. I mean, dead government, you can walk in, you find somebody can then can solve your problem. That's what's the magic about it. The other thing that I've got to say, Josh, one of the people ask me, you know, what's, does it really make any difference? And I say, yeah, let me, let me help you see if I can make it really clear in the real world how this can, you know, come up. If you're doing business with a big bank, those profits, they'll say, well, those profits, you know, those go everywhere. They go to the shareholders. Well, it's always interesting, though, if you look at SoFi, for example. SoFi is not really a bank, it's a big fintech, but then they're a big gigantic stadium with their name on them. And you have some of the big football stadiums all have bank names on them. Well, how do those things get built? They get built because somebody in, in Cheyenne, Wyoming had a checking account and they helped make profit. So some of that profit wouldn't help. But here's another thing that occurred to me. Oh, this is a couple of them about three years ago. We had a bunch of clients at Kasasser in Springfield, Missouri. And I'm there in Springfield and I'm getting a tour. And this particular banker, He's showing off that here is this massive Bass Pro Shop. And tied into this Bass Pro Shop there is the largest saltwater aquarium. I think in the, maybe in the world, it's the largest saltwater aquarium in the United States. Massive thing. 
And and he's telling me about that. And I said, God, that's amazing. He said, well, you know, that's Johnny Morris's thing. I said, well, who's Johnny Morris? Well, he's the founder, chairman of Bass Pro Shop. Oh, okay. Later, a couple days later, I'm at this fancy golf course. It's a ways away. Big, fancy restaurant. Major place where they have some PGA events and stuff. He said, oh, this is Johnny Morris's too. I said, well, he's doing well, hadn't he? Yeah, yeah. We're driving around town, and he's showing me the new shopping centers and these new office buildings, and he's, he's explaining to me. He's explaining to me that that's all of the family, different people of the family, that are owners of, of those auto parts stores. Anyway, that, and then we've gone around, and he's showing me some other stuff that's by owners of Prime, uh, the trucking company. And then there was another guy that had built some stuff, and he was one of the guys that started all the embassy suites. Anyway, the point, the takeaway is the fact that all of the, the baseball stadium was all built by that kind of stuff. All that just told me the families that had made Springfield, Missouri so amazingly awesome with all this massive, beautiful building stuff going on, it's all because of the profits from those companies. And that was just a good microcosm of trying to help everybody understand. When you're doing business with somebody whose headquarters is somewhere else, the money that you're paying for those products and services, it's going to end up going back and helping wherever that headquarters is more that's going to help your hometown and where you live. So that's what I'm always about. Do everything you can local because if it's, you're doing it with a local institution, those profits are going to be literally poured back into your local economy and your local people and everybody's, their life experience is going to be better. So that leads me back to, you know, you were talking about one of the reasons why the American GDP is so impressive is, you know, because this country is kind of built on this innovative mindset of, you know, being willing to start new businesses. And a lot of that is due to the community FIs being willing to help people start that journey. So as you've seen this consolidation over the last 30 years, what do you think that means for that? Does it have an impact? Do you think that the consolidation is good? Is there bad? Well, from the consolidation piece, anytime that happens, we do lose some of that local feel and, that, and the local decision-making. In other words, so much stuff now is done by the computers and algorithms. And if they don't know you, you know what? you did Just like you mentioned, it didn't fit the box. So they're going to turn you down. So that part hurts a lot. But the good news about the consolidation, if there is some good news, it's the rest of us that are still in the fight. It helps us understand how much more aggressive and nimble and quick we need to do to make changes if we're going to compete with these people. And it also, it just it shows the idea of the need, because there's a lot of people out there that would love, I mean, think about this, Josh, the millennials, O'Reilly, it's O'Reilly Auto Parts. Sorry. I knew you were going to yeah, get it. Yeah, it's being 69 and stuff, so hard to pull out real quick. The young, the people that are millennials, think about when they grew up. It's 2008, 2009. Okay. They're kids. Those kids now would be like 30. You know, if they were, if they were 10 years old then, now they're in their mid thirties. They grew up watching their parents go through some horrible times. And, and all they heard back then, it was the banks, the big banks caused this, which they did. Okay. And so they've grown up with this negative attitude to the mega banks. So as they get bigger and bigger and bigger, you still have the younger people going, eh, I don't, I don't trust banks. So, you know, that's why, think about this. People under 30, the 20s, they don't open checking accounts. They do their banking with Venmo and PayPal. Venmo. 
Well, that is- Which I think is interesting when you say that, you know, they're growing up in this world where their parents are like, ah, oh, I hated the big banks. The big banks screwed us over. And then they're creating big banks in big Venmo. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And all the fintechs, they don't have any FDIC insured deposits, you know, but. Well, and to your point from earlier, right? I mean, they're not, they're not local. That's right. Which, so, I, I mean, I think that this is interesting. And, and Don, I'm glad you brought this up because this is a topic that actually comes up a lot on the podcast, right? Of, I think that there is this resurgence of consumers wanting to do things local. Yes. And I think COVID accelerated some of that, right? But it's interesting how it's, you know, and, and again, I, I use this example probably too many times, but, you know, it helps set the stage. It, my neighbor owns a, an Ace Hardware store. And I'd love to shop at his Ace Hardware store because I know exactly where my dollars go. Right. Those profits, right? They go to help him hire other neighbors of ours. They go to putting his kids in school. I feel really good about that. And I mean, literally just yesterday, I needed some new uh, wood chips for the smoker for, uh, you know, 4th of July brisket. And I was looking at different reviews on Amazon for different wood chips. And then I just text Curtis and I was like, hey, you guys carry these? And he was like, yeah, totally. I was like, sweet, I'll grab those from you. But I still order stuff from Amazon, right? I'm not immune to that. I'll admit to it. And so there is this, I think, balance that consumers are trying to find of like, I want this convenience. I want these economies of scale. I want the low price for maybe some of my commodity items. But there are also times and places where I'm willing to pay more or I'm willing to be inconvenienced to some degree because I want a level of service or because I want something to be local or handmade, want that feeling. I want to do business with a company that I believe in, right? Right. So I, I think that there's almost this like tug of war with U.S. consumers right now in that regard. Well, no, no doubt about it. It's definitely more prevalent in the younger people wanting to do business local. The thing about what's so good, though, Josh, about our industry, with our banks and credit unions, they can compete with the giants because they can partner with fintechs. They don't have to de- develop all this stuff. You know, that's one of the beauties about that's why I know the community makes credit is there's still a future and they can still rock it. Because they have the ability to reach out there to there's thousands of us that, that can help them. And so they can always remain competitive. The only thing that was, is going to be the death knell, uh, you know, everybody knows it, it's the government. I mean, every time the government comes out with more regulations, you know, I kind of laugh and say, you know, Jamie Dimon might walk out on the you know, stage from the microphone and say, oh, this is horrible. This is going to cost us so much more money. We have to hire so many more people to keep up this new regulation. But I kind of think when he leaves the stage and goes behind the curtain, he can kind of say, woof, I wonder how many more community banks that's going to put out of business. It ain't going to hurt him because he can hire all these people. But the community guys, they can't go out and hire a bunch more people to keep up with another new regulation. That's the bigger threat, I think. Now, let's be honest. There's going to be banks and credit unions. That, you know, every year we're losing 10% more, 10% more. Those are the ones, though, that aren't. That I have this philosophy, Josh, and, and I wish I was wrong, but it's the truth. The problem with most of our colleagues is they're my age. What does that mean? Well, they know they're not getting younger people to bank with them. They know it, but they're kind of going, but that's not really my problem. I'm going to be out of here by then. That's the next, that's my successor. I'll let him deal with it. Well, it's already happening. And so that's the main problem is we have executive teams. They recognize problems, but they're not willing to put their foot down and say, Damn it, we got to do this now. We can't just push it, keep kicking the can down the road. 
It's their own, it's their, it's their inaction. It's their action is not to do anything. It's the status quo. That's what's going to kill them. So, you know, it's their own fault. But still, there's going to be plenty of them that survive. And it's because they're, they're the ones saying, mm-hmm. oh, we got to move. We got to go now. Otherwise, we'll lose the opportunity. Yeah, it is interesting being on, you know, our side of the table as vendors. And I think we do. We see a lot of that, right? I mean, I can tell you pretty unequivocally after an initial discovery call with a community FI, if they're the type of FI that has a leadership team that wants to really get stuff done and is willing to think outside the box and say, hey, you know what? We may have to piece this together. We need to accomplish this, 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 and this. And to do that, we're going to need to do this, 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 and this. And then you get the folks that are, to your point, are pretty stuck in their ways. And hey, I know this is how we've always done it. We're going to trade Apple for Apple, and we're going to keep on trucking. And, you know, I mean, I really hate to say it too, but I can't tell you how many times I've had conversations with friends at Community FIs. I literally was talking to a customer last night. And she was telling me about how a friend of hers at a another credit union just merged in to another credit union. And she said the reason was CEO just wanted to retire, wanted an easy way out, yeah. merged the credit union out, yeah. right? And I get that, right? If we're not providing real value to our members and we're not actually trying to push the envelope, maybe the better choice is to just merge into somebody who is going to really continue that charge and continue that fight. But to what you were talking about earlier, it, I don't know. There's Again, there's this kind of tug of war of the goods and the bads that comes with that. Yeah, having a little bit larger credit unions gives them more economies of scale, gives them more, not to Jamie Dimon's level, but more ability to say, hey, you know what? We can, we can hire for that. We can bring in resources. We can throw some money at that. We can do those things. We've got expertise. We've got talent on staff. But it also does make it so that you do lose some of that. Like, I know when I walk in, I can go and talk to Gail. Gail's going to know me. Right. And she's going to take care of me. Right? Yeah. I don't know. It's, you got goods and bads on both sides. But I think to your point, you know, we're seeing that an element of, and I'm not saying that it's the whole enchilada. It's lunchtime. Now I want an enchilada. I'm not saying that the whole enchilada is solved by technology, right? But I think by being able to leverage fintech is the way that we're able to kind of both do both, right? Provide some of the really community resources and still give consumers what they're asking for from technology. Yes. And if the community institution can give that consumer that technology they're looking for, they'll win every time. Yeah. No, I mean, we talked about, there was a, I think it was a Filene study not too long ago, and it was something to the effect of about 60% of U.S. consumers want to do business with a community FI over a big FI or a, you know, a fintech neobank, but only 12% of those people actually felt like the community FI had the technology they were looking for. Right. So they still ended up going to a big bank or a neobank or fintech. Exactly right. It's the perception. You know, how in the world could that little community bank down there be building something like internet banking. I mean, they, they, the consumers don't understand there's all a, this industry of companies like ours that support the community banking credit. And that's why we, if we could help educate them, no, you can get anything from a community institution that you can get from a big bank, provided that institution is partnered with other companies. Yeah. And sometimes even more. <laughs> that's right. Right? That's right. I hate when I, uh, you know, 
use the same thing too many times over, but I can't remember if I actually used this recently, but it was funny. Just the other weekend had an instance where a family member was trying to do something with their Bank of America account and they couldn't do it digitally. And I was like, that's crazy. How does Bank of America not allow them to do that digitally? So I went to one of our customers app, logged in, two clicks later, I was able to do it. And I was like, ha, my credit union just smoked Bank of America on technology. Like I was like some weirdo that everyone was probably looking at in the middle of the field of this balloon festival, jumping up and down. Like I was so excited. But so sometimes we can even be better because we're able to leverage some best in breed. Absolutely. And do it quickly. Good good example of what you just said. Jamie Dimon, he's on video talking about they spend 12 billion a year. And I hope everybody heard that number. That's B, 12 billion a year on technology. And my co-founder, he's built stuff for them. And he's taught, he was helping me understand. I said, how do they do that? I'm like, $12 billion. And he said, Don, well, first of all, you need to know that $7 billion of those dollars is not building anything new. Of that $12 billion, about $5 billion is actually building the new stuff. But it takes $7 billion to take the new stuff and integrate it into the thousands of platforms, legacy stuff that J.P. Morgan already has. And so your point, I hope everybody hears that. Community banks and credit unions, there are things they can do today the big banks can't do. And I can prove that if we get, you know, there are definitely some technologies that they can partner with right now that neither J.P. Morgan or, or Wells or Citibank or B of A can launch. So that is what, that's why I think we need to help everybody understand, look, this is what's available. You need to look into it so you can leverage that stuff, as you said in your own words. Leverage what's available to clobber the big guys. Yeah, well, and that, that I think that makes for an interesting challenge and opportunity for a community FI, right? And, and we've talked about this before, Don. You know, when you look at the scope of fintechs, I think you classified them in kind of three buckets, right? The ones that want to eat your lunch, <laughs> those are the ones that, you know, are kind of doing their own thing on the side, and then the ones that you can leverage right? And I think that there's a challenge for community FIs to find out who's who in those buckets for starters. Yeah, I think you're right. The the three, I'd like to look at some fintechs, they're going, they're taking everything they're doing directly to the consumer and they totally bypass the banks and the credit unions, just completely cut them out. So those fintechs, they're not there as your friend and they're not, they're there to eat your lunch. Well, then you have some other ones out there that they're, they're going directly to the banks and credit unions just to use their money because they're going to originate the loans and they're going to scrape off all the two and three or four points off the top and then take no risk. And then it's all up to the, you know, so those fintechs, they're kind of like, "Eh, we're going to use you to make the money we need to make. So, and then at some point in time, if they have enough money to fund their own loans, they cut them out of please. So that's kind of a short term. I'm not going to go in and eat your lunch. I'm going to go in there and partner with you for a time being until I don't need you anymore. And then you have fintechs that they literally, their whole business model is they have to work with the banks and credit unions or they don't have a revenue stream. And so that's, as you just pointed out wisely, the CEOs out there need to be thinking who they're getting a partner with. (laughs) Who's really there to help them versus who's there to use them versus who's not there at all. Well, yeah, and that's obviously a challenge in and of itself, right? Just finding, okay, which bucket do you fall in, Mr. Fintech, that I'm looking at or talking to or that is influencing my consumer, which we'll come to here in a second. But even once you get into that, right? So let's just take the bucket of we are 100% at our core dedicated to nothing other than 
making credit unions and community banks kick ass in tech. That's our sole objective in life. Then there's even so many of those, <laughs> right? So you as an executive at a credit union, you're sitting there and you're going, all right, well, there's like 40 billion fintechs that I could partner with to do things. How do they identify what are the things that are going to work best for their membership, their consumers, and actually provide meaningful benefit value? Great question. And, and I'm from my, I guess, almost 50 years now of being in business, well, the first thing you, you would want every CEO to do is, well, what's our, what are our, before I start looking at fintechs, what are our major strategic goals for the year? Let's start with that. You know, we, we don't want to be chasing every shiny object comes running through the door. Some vendor comes in, oh, that looks awesome. That's, that's great. Let's do it. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's back up. What are your strategic objectives for the year? That's where one should start. And then that starts filtering, okay. Every fintech that's come along, everything I'm reading about, I've already made the decision. These are the things we need to tackle. So that's my first filter is, is it going to help achieve a strategic goal? If it's not, then put it on the back burner. Does that make sense? I, at the risk of, you know, bringing up a little touchy subject on this for maybe some that might be listening, I put crypto in that bucket personally, All right? It's one of those things that's become a shiny object. And we've seen a lot of institutions that are like, Crypto, it's here. Ah, we got to either hedge our bet against it. We got to offer it. We got to make money off it. We got we to do something with it. And so they're chasing after integrating some sort of crypto wallet or something because it's all over the news and all their members think that they're, you know, going to be the bet next Jeff Bezos with some mega yacht because they strike it rich on Dogecoin or something. But my question is always, okay, that's great. If it achieves a major strategic objective for your institution, and you can demonstrate that that actually provides value to your overall membership, or do you have something else in your strategic vision that it, actually, if you did or put resources to, would actually provide more value to your members than just giving them the ability to buy and sell and hold crypto in digital banking or yeah. something? I don't know. Well, I, I think that's a pretty relevant example, personally. No, I would totally agree. You know, we just need to get more executive teams. So when they, they all have their goal planning every year, but I always wonder, well, what are they doing six months, eight months down the road looking back? Are we achieving those goals? What are we doing to make sure those things happen? And if they stick to that, then I think they're going to all be much better off and they won't be running around chasing these shiny things. Well, and I think, you know, I said we'd come back to it. I think one of the things that impacts that a lot too is consumer expectations, Right. Because we as consumers are chasing shiny squirrels like it's going out of style. <laughs> I mean, you know, we see the next thing on TV and we're we're all about it. And so I think a lot of times that bleeds over to the institution as well. And that's how you get things like, you know, all of a sudden we're like, oh my gosh, I'm going to do something with crypto. Why? Because all of a sudden all your members are like, oh my gosh, Elon was on Saturday Night Live. I got to do something with crypto. Yeah. And usually, and usually, so, as you point, as you're saying there, Josh, it's not a lot of the members, it's just some of the loud ones. Yeah, but, you know, I have been, so how do you take that feedback, I guess is my question, right? And how do you take the things that, one, your members or customers are getting attracted to? What are, what are the shiny squirrels they're trying to chase? Right. Or that they're being drawn to? And then what is the market influencing them to do, right? And so I think this is where we get into some of the, new niche products and services and offerings that are coming out from some of these direct-to-consumer fintechs that are all of a sudden telling consumers, well, you didn't have this financial product yesterday, or maybe you did in this way, 
but we're going to offer you this. And then the banks and credit unions don't offer it or offer it in an older, less competitive way or whatever it may be. And I think that's also driving consumer influence. What did you say? You said something to me before we started recording. Um, it was one of the like BNPL companies or something went from like zero to 60 million users in a year or something crazy. What was the stat you gave? Oh, no, it was, it was Clorida. When we were looking you know, a couple of years ago, my co-founder and I were trying to figure out what do you, what do we want to build? What do we want to do? My wife said, you look, you need to retire. You need to get out and work and I'm bored. So, okay. So, <laughs> so Boris, I don't have even told you about Boris. Boris is my co-founder. He's really a genius behind all this. And he's been building. Did I already say this? Uh uh-uh. uh. Okay. Well, you said he'd worked with some of the, the big banks oh, and okay, things so in the past before, but that was about it. We were kicking around different ideas, and he came out here to Montana. I said, Look, come spend a week, come bring your wife. And he brought his daughter, who's a lawyer, and they spent a week up here with us on the lake. And we'd sit around on the patio talking about what's going on, you know, in the banking world, what's going on in our industry. And this is what was happening. And everybody remember notice this is the September first week. This is Labor Day week of 2020. What was going on was BNPL was all over the place. It had exploded across this country. Two, Amex, Chase, Citibank, et cetera, had all started offering installment loans to people carrying their credit cards. That was all over the news. And then in the thing, what you're remembering is Klarna had just been in the United States, just finished their first year here and had, you know, they, they started with 6 million, had 12 million U.S. consumers that had a loan with them. It just is all over the place. And so Boris is looking at me like, we don't need to look at, here's what we need to build. This is a massive opportunity. The banks and credit unions have no way to compete with these guys because until they have a digital platform. By the way, I, I got to say this. This is really key. And it's not, kind of been to your question, I think. Jim Quinn, he's the chief, chief sales officer for uh, Upgrade. Everybody on this podcast. Cash probably knows upgrade. A couple of weeks ago at the digital banking conference in Austin, he made a speech. In that talk, he mentioned this statistic that I may be wrong on the number of, of loans, but I think it was applications. I think he said they get about 3 million applications a month. The key isn't the, isn't the number 3 million. The key is the next thing. Josh, 75% of those apps come in after 5 o'clock. So I'm trying to get after traditional finances closed the yeah, stores for the day. Yeah, I'm like, oh my God. And so how do we get our CEOs to understand? Look, if you're going to be remain relevant, you know, first of all, you can't tell people they got to come in and sign documents to get their money. And that you're never going to get millennials and Gen Z if you make that requirement. That's just that that dog's ain't going to that, that dog's dead. <laughs> you know, if, that's not that's that's just out. But if 75% of the people getting loans are doing it after banking hours, then bankers need to understand they need to make a decision. Are they just going to give up on that and just, you know, okay, we're not in the game anymore. We're just going to compete for the 25%. Or are they going to be hiring loan officers to come up there at five o'clock until nine the next morning and be there seven days a week? Or are they going to embrace FinTech and go digital? Now back to Jamie Diamond, his whole thing about, He's on video saying, I'm spending all this money because we're trying to get J.P. Morgan Chase to be an all-digital bank. So we kind of get our colleagues to understand they can't sit back and wait. They got to move. That's a long answer to your question. I'm sorry. I kind of got off. No, I love long answers. What do you see as the other risks of community FIs not doing these things? So I'm gonna, I want to take this all the way back to where you kind of started with what got you 
you know, passionate about this industry in the first place. So, you know, as we start to see some more of these big mega banks and fintechs start to move more digital, and we're saying that credit unions, community banks, they need to do that as well to stay competitive. Do you think that that also means that we're going to start to see more branch closures, more people shuttering up in small towns and just moving digital? And, and do you think that that takes away some of our global competitive advantage as a country when we start to, again, consolidate, shrink our local presence and start to move more digitally? And if yes, then how do you convince consumers that they want you to stick around in their community and not just be 100% digital? I think a complicated question. A couple of things that were flying through my mind as you're asking about it. I know through uh, my co-founder, Boris, when he was at J.P. Morgan, they did a big study about they wanted to close down. In. I think they had like five or 6,000 branches across the country. They were, they had some, they were going to get rid of a thousand of them. The numbers were wrong, but that's the idea. And they paid a big firm a ton of money to do a study on closing all these branches because it seemed like it makes sense. After the study, the results were, nope, you don't want to close the branches. But the reason will be shocking to everybody on why. And the reason is, if you look at where all the branches are, they're in places, they said, keeping the branch open, the value, the marketing branding, having that branch there is worth a whole lot more than closing it down. But the same as you can close. In other words, that branch on the corner has got your chase sign on it. You don't want to get rid of that. There's so much marketing brand awareness by keeping those branches open. That's, but that's, that's unusual. But a lot of those branches are in the, you know, bigger places. Now, the question about the, you know, rural, the smaller banks, let's talk about reality. I like to ask him, Josh, say, Hey, look, let's have a little truth session. How many of your customers are under 30? How many new accounts are you opening with people in their 20s? It isn't happening. So it doesn't take a brain surgeon to figure out, well, wait a minute. If things don't change dramatically, I don't have any customers. I mean, the reality is that the average age of community banks and credit unions is really high. Most of them, it's 55, 58. It's way up there. That's a huge problem. And so if unless they, that goes back to what I said earlier, one of the biggest problems we have in our industry is the people running those banks and credit are they're my age. That's the next guy's problem. I, I'll be out of here in the next few years, and it won't matter. But we got to get people to younger people in the institution say, well, it matters to me. I want to have a job. So some of the places, it, it just didn't, you know, the, they're probably a lot of those institutions will close the branches because they can't, you know, the marketing value isn't worth it, but they have to be able Think any rural town in America, okay? The, the younger people, they leave. But if they had digital offerings, if the young person can do everything on their phone, which is what the goal needs to be, it doesn't matter that they've moved 200 miles away or 400 miles away, but they know they're still doing business with their local bank or their local credit union. They know that the profits are still going back helping their hometown. So that's all. Without the technology in the fintech stuff, they wouldn't be able to stay in business and compete. But because of what's available to them today, they can. Do you think that there's also a almost education that needs to be done to the younger generations of the importance of community FIs? Because like we were talking about earlier, right? These, the younger kids, they're, they're not opening a checking account, right? They're doing it with Venmo. Right. So 
if that, let's say that trajectory continues, right? And let's say that the vast majority of US retail accounts are held at maybe three major banks and two major fintechs, right? Because ultimately, especially when we look at technology, there's usually only two major winners, right? You got Apple, you got Android. Um, let's say we get to that point, hypothetically, and there's no more community banks, and we become like some of these other countries that you talked about earlier. I don't know about you, Don, but I don't think I don't think the vast majority of Americans, especially ones my age and younger, have any darn clue what that means. And what would be lost if we lost these community FIs? So do you think there's got to be some sort of education to them of like, hey, you guys got to make sure that they stick around. You got to start opening some accounts here because otherwise you're going to put yourselves in the hands beholden to these major corporations that at the end of the day care about returning profit to shareholders. And at a credit union, that's you. At Chase, it ain't you. That's right. Well, does it have to be an education? Yeah, I'm not in the business trying to educate everybody. I think that's just going to have to come from the marketing messages of the institution themselves. And it, they have to be able to deliver something that the younger people thinks awesome. Well, this is awesome. <laughs> and it's in this word of mouth. I mean, that's how Benmo took off. So again, there's things out there that community institutions can log on to and latch on to and start using the younger people that have it, you know, the other thing is they're going to have to market to the younger people. They need to, you know, that's another problem we have in our, our industry. If you look at all their marketing stuff, it's not designed to go after Gen Z and millennials. I mean, I drive around the country and you do too this, Josh. Think about, think about the reality. Everywhere we go, you're driving down the highway and you look at a billboard and what does the billboard say? We have mobile banking. Oh, whoop-de-doo. Or then you go to another town you got another billboard up. We do mortgages. We've got good rates. I mean, it makes my head explode. <laughs> you know, we have to help our institutions. Now, look, you, to be competitive, you got to put the, you got to market something that's innovative and people want. And that's not yesterday's news. And you have to develop and, and work with people who are going to go after these younger people. It can be done. And there's people who are being successful at it. We just yeah, I, just, I had an opportunity to give a, a talk recently because I opened my big mouth, which um, I apparently do more often than not. And I happened to be talking to a, a banking association about how I felt like community banks just do an absolutely terrible job of marketing. And the example that I gave was, I was like, look, I don't see a single community bank in my actual hometown region area. None of them market to me on social media. None of them. I was like, have any of you done a TikTok video? And they were like, oh gosh, no. Oh, we would never do a TikTok video. I was like, why? And they said, well, because we cater to businesses. I was like, wonderful. Do you know who runs businesses? People. You know where people are? I hate to admit it, but they're on stupid TikTok. What? What? Right. And so I started doing a little bit of research into this and it was absolutely mind boggling how little marketing I could find. But I started doing a little bit more digging and I found one of my customers actually is a small credit union outside of a small town in Idaho. And Don, they brought in a CMO who wasn't from banking. He's a successful fintech or not fintech, just successful tech exeter uh -huh. who's built a couple of successful tech companies. 
They brought him in, basically gave him carte blanche and said, go to town. And he goes, cool. He started doing a little bit of research, looked at where they had opportunities, presented to the board. He was going to start doing a bunch on social media, including TikTok. They were like, oh my gosh, no, 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 we can't do that. And he's like, hey, you said you were going to trust me. Let me do it. Don, this tiny little credit union, I say tiny, I mean, they're like 600 million in assets. They're not terribly tiny, but this small credit union in a rural town just in the last couple of months has had something like 10 viral, legitimately viral TikTok videos. We're talking six, 700,000 views. And what's that guy's name? <laughs> what? He's a, I can't say it. He's about to get stolen. <laughs> I'm sure you get lots of phone calls, but I'm so glad you're sharing that. And I hope there's thousands of people that hear your voice right now and hear heard what you just say. They need to hear it. They need to do something. Again, we got to get them off their deaths and and start taking some action. I think that was my whole point of the message, right? Was you guys have a really exciting story to tell. (laughs) Go back to why you're so passionate about this industry and why you want to serve them up great technology. Why? Because they're really doing good for our country as a whole and for our communities. And for the people that are in those communities, more importantly than anything. And they actually do have a competitive advantage in being able to leverage some of these technology companies to provide really cool products and services and features to their consumers. So they have this amazing opportunity. They have this amazing story. Execute on it and go and tell people about it because people will be interested. People want in on this. Yeah. The thing, you know, also, Josh, when you're talking about how do we educate people, and one of the things that just hit me, it doesn't matter what town you go in, especially the smaller towns. Look around. You think about every high school football stadium, anything that has to do with education. Look at all the charity events. Who supports all that? Who's behind all that? It's your local banks and local credit unions. If those guys go away, then you're going to lose a ton of money in the local economy that's supporting all the things that are important to people. And because if those local institutions are gone, you're going to be calling New York City trying to get Chase to send some money down, you know, into Dubuque, Iowa or somewhere or to Lakeside, Montana, where I am. It ain't going to happen. So that's one of those other things that we, we got to help the younger people understand. Another, that's another reason support your local people because they're the ones that support all the institutions where you live. Your quality of life is going to be much better if you can keep those financial institutions going and keeping them, you know, make profit and they give it right back to the community. What kind of things are you seeing that? your younger generations are asking for from just financial services as a whole and that technology could provide for credit unions. Is there anything that's been kind of standing out to you as interesting? I know you were talking about one of the things that got you started on what you're doing now is the the BNPL stuff. But are there are there other things that you're looking at that you're like, gosh dang, our industry really needs to solve that or get on that boat or well you know, right off the bat, let's just go back to Jamie Diamond. He's saying, okay, we're going to spend, we're spending 12 billion a year on technology to, to drive it so our bank can be digital. They move, by the way, this is, people understand how big they are, but they move $3 trillion a day globally, hundred and something currencies. So he wants it to be digital. It's got to be, so we think about the young people, specific answer to your question. You and I know somebody's 24, 27. If they need anything, and I know we're not on video, but I'm just picking up my mobile phone in my hand. It doesn't matter what they need. They pick up their phone and they type it in. 
Okay, let's talk about financial. Car loan, they type in car loan, boom, there's 50 options on their phone of where they go for a car loan. Those who are older and married, mortgage, type in mortgage, boom, they're looking at all the, they don't ever think about driving around to a bank or a credit union. It's never going to enter their mind. They're going to do it on their freaking phone. And so the question is, do you see anything interesting going on over there? Yeah. <laughs> the banks and credit unions, I don't care what size they are, they need today, not wait, they need to have a digital lending solution so that anybody in America can pick up their phone and type in whatever kind of loan they're looking for, and that banker credit union is going to pop up because now they're using the social media, they're using the the Google sort, they're using those things, and because it's local, they have a, a big, big chance of popping up in the top screen. But they've got to be able, you know, people want it now. They, you know, they don't want to. If it's going to take them more than four or five minutes to apply and get a loan, they're they're gone. They're going to the next place. So you got to be able to offer the, the the individuals the ability. You got to enable them to apply, go through underwriting, get approved, and fund that loan within minutes, or you're never going to have a chance to get them. The other big danger, you say, what is going on? All these buy now, pay later stuff. I mean, buy now, pay later. Specifically, eighty percent of that business is online purchases. That's one point. Second point. 80%, those same 80%, the purchases are less than $250. They're tiny things. There's no underwriting. Why is there no underwriting? Well, because the consumer pays 25% down. It's all called paying for, BNPL, paying for. Consumers pay 25% down when they make the purchase, of those $200 tennis shoes or purse. And every two weeks, they're paying another 25%. The consumer pays 0% interest, okay? We all know that. 0% interest for six weeks. Now, there's people that are reading these things about, wow, the charge-offs and delinquencies are pretty high on that stuff. Well, let's look at the math. The, the consumer's paying no interest. However, the retailer, they're paying a minimum of 5% off the top to make that happen. A lot of times it's up to 10%. But Josh, I've done the math. If a consumer is getting 0% interest for six weeks and the retailer paid 5% to Klarna or Sezzle or Afterpay, you know what the APR is on that? It's almost exactly 100% APR. So those of y'all who are listening to this podcast, get your calculator out and do the math. If a person's getting a $100 loan and they're paying 25 bucks up front, and the retailers give them five percent, then that the, the, you're only loaning out, you know, seventy bucks. Do the math; it's a hundred percent APR. So that's why, but that's when the delinquencies are high. They don't care. They make yeah, plenty. you're on major money. They make plenty. We're good. On it. Now that's you know that's a really interesting one for me. I think there's a couple of things to unpack in that. It, you know, I don't, what was I? Oh gosh, what is the sock company? Where you get a pair of socks in the mail every month? No, they do. They probably do that too. Um, oh my gosh, I can't think of the name, but they're one of the, you can get like Star Wars socks and all of these fun different patterns and things like that. And it kind of exploded a while ago. They do socks and they do underwear. And I was on their website a while ago and I was looking and you can do a buy now, pay later through a firm for a $12 pair of underwear. Yeah. And I was like, man, I don't know. 
if we've been a place in America where you need to do BNPL for underwear, like I feel like we got bigger problems to fry. Like we need to start having some serious conversations. With well, okay, now let's but, let's talk about why in the world are they doing that? Here's why, and you know this. We've talked about it. All of these buy now pay later companies, their sights are on stealing your customer completely. A firm who started out, you know, the big deal was Peloton. Now they're doing Amazon. Then they got Walmart. They're the Goliath out there. They're offering high interest deposit accounts. All of them, Klarna, Klarna is huge in Europe. Okay. They're, they're in the banking in a big way over there. All of these companies, they're after the, it's a customer acquisition play. They'll let the retailers pay all the money up front to make it happen. But the real play, why do they care about getting somebody with a $12 loan? Because they're going to cross sell the fire out of it. You know, what we got to get our clients there saying, they don't know that because they don't look. If they look in their own database, I'm telling you, Josh, if we can get our, our clients to take the time, go look into the transactions of your existing members. You're going to see 60% of them are making payments to these BNPL companies. They're little bitty tiny loans. That's not the danger. The fact that you don't get a $180 loan for tissues, big deal. The problem is those guys are cross-selling your customers. And once they start doing that and start offering, hey, what do you need your checking account for? Get us our prepaid card. We'll pay 3% interest and, and 5% cash back. That's why the younger people aren't coming in and you're, you're in danger of losing what you got. So you, you need to compete. You need to jump in there. And, you know, I, I made the comment. I think you've heard me tell me tell before. McKinsey, by the way, McKinsey did this white paper about, I don't know, seven or eight months ago, the big consulting company. And it's about a 12-page document. And at the end of this, I'll, anybody wants it, I'll send it to them. It's amazing. And every, every banker in the country should read it. They should have everybody on their executive team read this document. They spent a bunch of money doing this study into the buy now, pay later space. And it's some great information in it. Well, one of the things that was in that document is the fact that installment loans are skyrocketing and credit card use is coming down, okay? Well, the younger people, because they're so much smarter today, you know, that's counterintuitive as well. I always thought, so wait a minute. I've, I've been told the younger generations, they're a lot more credit savvy, and I thought, there's no, there's no freaking way. They don't know what we know. Well, I'm, I was proved wrong because now they have credit karma. They got all these, you can get up for, you know, get up sign up with Equifax or Experian, get your free credit report. And they're getting alerts and they're learning all about how to keep their, their credit scores good. So two things are going on. The younger people try to avoid like the plague to use a credit card. And then you have the McKinsey points out these installment loans over 800 bucks. The average credit score is 740. Mm. Which is what people would think. These are people more credit savvy. And, and they know these people and they have credit cards and they have plenty of available credit. They can still use them. But in this study, they've learned that people that are more credit savvy, if they know they're going to make a large purchase, $2,000, $3,000, $4,000, and they know they're not going to pay it off immediately, if they have a choice, if they have an option, instead of using my credit card, if I could put it on an installment loan and I could pick my payment, they're going with the installment loans. And so that's where we got to get our colleagues to understand the whole methodology of buying and paying for things it's rapidly changing and, and i don't want our colleagues just sit around and watch it happen <laughs> they need to jump in and, and start compete for this stuff well and that's one of the things i think is so interesting about this right is it, you just said it it's 
the whole fabric of how we buy and sell and is changing. And what's interesting is I think that's such a huge opportunity for community FIs because that's been one of the spaces that we've really excelled in in the past, right? We talked about it earlier of how, you know, a local community FI is a lot more likely to loan to somebody to start a new business or whatever it may be. Even then, I don't remember the stats off the top of my head, but it's fascinating how many really high quality loans there are to give out to people that are not being given out today. Well, there's people that are virtually 0% risk of not paying back that loan or missing a payment that we're not giving loans to. And so those people are one of two things is happening with them, right? They're being served the wrong way. They're doing payday loans. They're doing you know, these high interest credit cards or things like that. I guess there's three, sorry. So doing that, they're not being served at all. Right. Right. And then they're struggling for no reason. And, you know, we use the example, you got somebody whose, you know, pet gets sick and they go to the vet and they can't afford the bill. Right. What do they do? So then they fall into one of these categories. So does their dog not get the treatment? Do they get suckered into one of these payday loans or a high interest credit card payment that they make for that, or they get offered something by FinTech Yeah, that's pretty clever and attractive. What if there was a fourth bucket and it was actually provided by the community FIs? And what if we were using technology, AI and ML, to be able to help identify those scenarios and even say, hey, Don, we see you've been doing pretty good. You're learning to manage your budget a little bit better but you're still a little paycheck to paycheck. And right now we recognize that, you know, you would struggle to cover a $400 unexpected expense. And we see, you know, I'm not saying where this is the marketing message we're giving, but, you know, we see that all of a sudden you're starting to have some more vet bills, small ones, but they're coming in. I would say, with technology, we could reasonably assume there's a good chance that they're about to incur a vet bill that they couldn't cover. Yeah. So a timely marketing message being coming from your credit union, like, hey, Don, just FYI, if something comes up, we want you to know we got you. You're automatically instantaneously approved for 500 bucks. If you need it, it's here. It's one click. We got you. Silly, simple little things like that could allow our community FIs to really compete in a space where one, we're still seeing a lot of underserved, right? And people that are not being given loans to that should be. We're also seeing people that are still falling sucker to payday loans, high interest credit cards. And then we're seeing this new group of people that are starting to get smart and leverage and use some of these new types of products like BNPL from some of these fintechs. And to your point, I think we got to compete. Yeah. And everything you're saying is dead on. And, and the solution always comes back to the digital, the digital world. Because banks and credit unions, I mean, James Mark, CEO of City National Bank in Taylor, Texas. That bank's a 120-year-old bank. Fourth generation, Eddie Griffith, the fourth running the bank. And then he says, we need loans, obviously. He said, more important to me is we need to get some Gen Zs in here. Otherwise, there's not a bank for my grandkids to run <laughs> if they choose to. But James Mark, who's the president of the bank, the thing that he talks about, he said, you know, Don, anybody that comes into our institution, they've been with us 20, 30 years. If the loan, if their loan request is under two grand, 
We've just said we don't we don't do anything under two. It just costs too much. They can't underwrite a loan. You can't do a, a small loan. And he and it said it kills them because he knows he's sending them down the street to go get the payday loan, like you're talking about paying 180 percent interest or more, because they got to get you know 1,200 bucks to get their car out of the shop. And and so that's why. And this is true of everybody across the country. They all have customers. They don't need forty thousand dollars. They might need three or two. And in the cost of underwriting, just can't make it work. That's why I keep telling them you got to go digital. You got to have a digital a, a digital loan officer on the spot, which you can get out there. Yep, there's a lot of opportunity. There really is, and there's a lot that can be solved by technology. And I think it just takes the right people, the right people seeing the right shiny squirrels and then getting after it. Yeah. If you go back to strategically, because one of the things I've asked all our clients and prospects, you know, we've been out there for six months now showing this to people. And I always ask them, what, what were your goals coming into the year? And let me share those with the audience because I think they'll relate. First thing everybody says is we need more loans because you've had all this PVP money flowing in. We've had all this, everybody out there has got access to deposits. I mean, there might be some exceptions, but overall, everybody has more deposits that they can put to work. And they're all looking for loans. And I always like to ask everybody, well, okay, well, what are you doing? What's your strategy? Uh, and then I was going to walk in the door. You know, a lot of the banks, one of their strategies for the year goals is they want to get a lot more business accounts. And that's true in some credit unions. I mean, I've been talking to some that go, that's a big goal for us. We want to reach out and wrap our arms around small businesses. I say, well, what's your strategy for that? Third thing, everybody and I think, Josh, you heard me talk about this in Florida at McCuso. Everybody's talking about the goal is digital transformation. And I always say, that's the problem. Everybody's just talking about it. I don't see anybody doing anything. You know, they just keep talking and talking about it. And then the fourth thing, which is I added, that's the three goals, you know, here all the time. But the fourth one they don't talk about, and that is they got to get some younger people to come in and bank with them. We got to get young people over the counts or they're just walking dead. They're just walking their dinosaur heading to the extinction. And that's for people like you. I love the fact that you're doing these podcasts. I love the fact that you're getting other people in the, in the industry on here to start preaching and evangelizing that you got to move. You got to do something now. Yeah. Time's not now. It was yesterday. Yeah. We, we got to get cracking. Yeah, well, Don, I mean, you did not disappoint, sir. <laughs> this is why I wanted to have you on the podcast. You're just an absolute blast to talk to. And it's just, it's one of the things that's so cool about this podcast is just how much it reinvigorates even my passion for this industry. It's just seeing folks like you that get as fired up as you do about, look, let's face it, I'm pretty sure I, I'm safe in saying this with you, but you're probably in a place where you could do what you've said a lot of people are doing. Be like, you know what? That's the next generation's problem. I really hope that works out for my grandkids, but you're not. <laughs> you're still getting after it. And I love that. And I appreciate that. And I'm really thankful to have an opportunity to hear your story and see your passion by having you as a guest on this podcast. Well, I appreciate the kind words, but there's, can I, can I mention something else that they need to be aware of that's going on? Of course. So let's talk about real world, what's going on, something else that's happening that everybody needs to be aware of. Goldman Sachs paid $2 billion for Green Sky. They're going to run it under the Marcus brand, the retail Marcus Bank, which is Apple Card, same bank. It runs Apple Card, okay? And y'all probably read the article. It was about a month ago. It came out, and they have a goal to get a million new accounts a year by offering installment loans for home improvement. Because Green Sky, that's what they did. 
And so I want everybody on this podcast to think about, well, who is it that needs home improvement loans? Well, with the price of houses skyrocketing, there's going to be people staying in their homes a lot longer and they're going to need things done. Well, who are the people that do those things? Let's see. Roofers, plumbers, HVAC people, kitchen cabinet makers, granite people, asphalt resealers. Are those companies owned by people that you bank? Do you add some of those businesses in your institution? They have their checking accounts there. And the answer is yes. So I want you to stop and just think for a minute what's getting ready to happen. A year from now, and I, I believe this, Josh, with all my heart, I know I'm right. A year from now, every business in America that has a product or a service that will cost the consumer 800 bucks or 20,000 bucks or 40,000 bucks. Every one of those businesses is going to be offering instant financing at the point of sale. If you, if you want to say, we need our windows, you know, our house, our windows, or they need replaced and they come out and it's 30 grand. They're going to say, Oh, you need a loan here. Scan this QR code. You can get a loan right now. That's already happening. The reason everybody's going to be offering it is because there's a hundred fintechs and each one has their own little niche. Okay. Goldman Sachs has made it clear. We're going after your roofers and plumbers and we're going after everybody. Those are your customers. So when they come to your customers and say, Hey, we're going to help you increase your sales. Do, do I have to borrow money from Goldman? No, 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 no. You don't have to borrow money from us. Just open a checking account in our new bank, my our retail bank, bank Marcus. In every customer that needs your service, just show them this QR code. And in five minutes, we can underwrite and approve and fund a loan that you'll get your money. That is the reality of what our colleague, iBonus Podcast, needs to know right now. A year from now, that will have all unfolded. And so my plea to everybody listening to this is don't wait till that happens. You can do that now. You can get FinTech to work with you today. So that you go to all those customers and you tell them you want to help them increase their sales. And then you're the one making those loans and you're the ones getting the new members. I mean, you think about a credit unit, they want new members, they want new loans. Holy moly. All they got to do is go out and tell every business in town, hey, we'll finance your customers, instant financing. Make that happen. That's, I'm out. Yeah. How many times do you think a roofer goes out to a job, bids a house, 20 grand, Family goes, oh my gosh, 20 grand to redo our roof. Like we, we haven't been setting aside for that. We don't. So what do they do? <clears throat> they then go shop around other roofers, potentially. They go look for other financing methods for that, or they decide not to do their roof. But what if that roofer right then was like, hey, it's 20 grand, but look, we know we do this all the time. This is a big pill to swallow. We know a lot of people aren't just sitting there going, I'm waiting for my roof to be replaced. I've got a bunch of money just sitting there waiting for my roof to be replaced. So guess what? Literally right here, right now, we can offer you super simple financing. We can take the pain out of this for you. You can break this up into payments. Let's get you on the books. Let's get you scheduled. Let's get your roof done. Yeah. Right. I mean, that roofer is going to be all over that because they're going to be booking more business. Customers can be all over it because they're not having to go figure it out. And they don't, they don't have to put it on a 16 or 20% interest credit card either. You're going to get a much lower rate. Yep. Yeah. There's a lot of opportunity there.
think you're right. It's all out there. So we're we're excited about shaking the trees and, and uh, alerting everybody. There's lots of potential out there. They just need to get into it. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Don, before I let you go, I got two final questions for you, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, again, I don't think this is going to come as a shock to anybody who's listened to the, the last hour plus of this with you, but um, you're obviously very passionate about this industry, and uh, you're also pretty darn educated about it. So where do you go to stay up to date on what's happening? Where do you get your information? Well, I had the luxury of going to lots and lots of conferences in any, anywhere I'm going where there's a trade show. And people who know me know this. I, I go walking. I mean, I may be speaking myself. Uh, we may be in a booth and have people, but I will literally walk the exhibit halls, talking to people, looking at what's going on. And uh, that's where I keep up to date. It's at the trade shows. So that's probably the biggest thing. And, I, and I, I'm a big, I mean, there's some other things I look at all the time, you know, financial brand. I follow Ron Shevlin. I mean, there's people out there that are influencers. Or at, that's their job. They're looking out there every day, what we need to be aware of. And so I try to follow them as well. Main thing, though, is just is the trade shows. That's where, I, that's where I see what's going on. I know. It's nice to see those coming back. Yeah. All right. Final question for you, sir. If people want to connect with you and if they want to learn a little bit more about Quillow and what you guys are doing and how you're shaking some trees, where can they find and connect with you and where can they learn more about your company? Well, I, I would tell everybody, just come to me direct, Don, D-O-N, Don at Quillo, Q-U-I-L-O, Quillow it, put an it on the end of it. What do you need to do? You need to Quillow it, Q-U-I-L-O-I-T.com. And send me that, and I got all kinds of goodies I can send you. And by the way, heck, I don't know when this is aired, but everybody's listening to it. Today, tomorrow's July the 1st. In four days, we're going to be celebrate, celebrating July 4th. Can I take a minute to tell everybody about July 4th? Why well, it's such a big deal? Yeah, it's going to be, uh, we're going to be well past it by the time this airs, I think. But uh, well, that's okay. be a good that, look back. That's okay. I, I think it's it's important. I mean, it's, it's plenty of one of the, you know, besides Christmas, it's the biggest th- thing to me. And I want to tell everybody why. Because it goes back to the thing about the, you know, why am I passionate about community max print use? I like to think about, you know, years ago, there were, there were a bunch of guys sitting in a pub, you know, and I think they were in Philadelphia and they're sitting around this smoky, smoky, and everybody's smoking pipes and stuff and, and drinking ale and beer and stuff. And they've been there sitting for a while. And one of them says the other one, he says, you know what? I think we need to just kick their asses out. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, yeah, because those redcoats, they took on Joe Smith and his whole family, kicked him out of their house, took over their house and won't let them back in. And I got some relatives out in the country. They've been taking their cows and their chickens and giving them what, you know, 10 cents on the dollar and not give them a fair price. I, we just need to get them out. And then some other guy says, well, how are we going to do that? You know, we don't have an army. We don't have a military. We don't have anything. He said, I don't know. We, we just, I mean, you know, they, they've been drinking probably a little bit too much, but they had this idea that they were going to go you know, kick out the, the British empire. And then, so they said, let's get TJ to write him a letter. And so they, they go get TJ and he, he writes this letter to the King. And I would have loved to have been there when that letter got delivered. Cause you know, think about it. I would have loved to have seen the expression on the King's face when he heard somebody, cause I'm sure he didn't read the letter himself. Somebody read it to him, but this one line that everybody on this podcast knows, they probably recite it. That woman line that says, we believe something. Here's this guy. He's telling the king, why, why are we going to leave you? And they write this sentence and says, 
We believe these truths to be self-evident. It's like a slap in the face, like, hey, King George, you, this is so obvious, but we're going to write it down for you because it's so obvious. We believe these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. Now, at that point, the King George probably went, what? I mean, that's unheard of. We believe these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. That's a holy concept. And they have these inalienable rights endowed by their creator, which includes the pursuit of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, those words. So those guys, they wrote that letter, and they took it over to the king, and then they, they said, okay, we declare our independence, and then they ended up having a war. So I always like to think about, Josh, what gave those men the belief that they could pull it off? I mean, they didn't have an army. They didn't have, a, they didn't have nothing. What gave them the confidence that they could take on the British Empire, which is the biggest military complex on the planet? What gave them that confidence? And this is the part that people don't know. They don't look at. It's the last sentence of the Declaration of Independence. That's why I like people go look at the last sentence because what it says, this is the answer. It says that for support of this declaration, so they just declared what they're going to do. And for support of this declaration, with a firm reliance in the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. That is the line that's so important about the Declaration. That's what gave them the reason to believe. I always call it the RTB. They gave them the RTB. We can do this because they put their faith in Almighty God. And I need to remind everybody, they won. So, Fourth of July, y'all had it a few days ago, but next time the Fourth of July rolls around, just remember there were some awesome, awesome people that took amazing risks because when they signed that thing, they signed their death warrant. And I'm grateful every day I get up. We got a lot of things going against us here, but we still have the greatest country in the world. And one of those things that makes us so great is our financial institution and all the community institutions that, that make it up. So let's keep fighting for them. And I thank you, Josh, for having me over today. That's awesome. Thank you, Don. I appreciate it. You're a phenomenal guest, a ton of fun to talk to, a great resource, and it was an absolute pleasure. So thanks for joining me on the Digital Banking Podcast. You bet. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Digital Banking Podcast powered by Typhoon. Find more episodes on digitalbankingpodcast.com or subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Typhoon. Everyone builds features. Not everyone builds relationships. We build both.